We are human beings, not political abstractions. Sounds obvious, no? And yet, I think we all know how often we live up to that ideal. An ideal that is at the heart of today's guest's message. Chloe Valdery is a writer, thinker, and entrepreneur, founder of Theory of Enchantment, a diversity and inclusion program that aims to remind us of our shared humanity, to help us create workplaces where we can unite around shared purpose and embrace our differences with love and compassion. We explore how love can show up at work and so much more during our conversation. We had some technical issues that affect both sound and video quality, but I hope you can take in enough to appreciate the profound nature of Chloe's teachings. We talk about how our efforts to discharge deep personal pain are often at the heart of conflict in the workplace. We talk about the vulnerability of nonviolent communication and how it can strengthen trust within a relationship. And we talk about how the best conversations at work are like jam sessions, each person truly present and feeding off each other, creating something we could never create on our own. These kinds of conversations are my jam, going deep on important stuff that makes you feel something. I hope you feel it too. Okay, Chloe Valdery, welcome to the Desuckify Work Podcast. Thanks for having me. I love the name of your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm trying to have some fun with it. And uh, I'd, I'd love for people to get a chance to, to know you. I've, I've known of you for a little bit. I've, I've heard you on some other podcasts. I've listened to your own podcast. Um, and I followed you on Twitter and LinkedIn. But you're doing some really interesting work. And I'd love for people to get a, a sense of what that work is and, and maybe a bit of how you came to be doing that work. Awesome. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. So I have a startup called Theory of Enchantment. And the basic premise of the startup is to teach people how to love. Mm -hmm. And what that means is we primarily partner with other companies who are trying to create a culture of inclusion and belonging, which really boils down to creating a culture of trust in the workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, employees will go through our workshops. They will go through our online course. And by the end of their time with us, they will have emerged more compassionate, more open-hearted, more uh, with the capacity to be vulnerable uh, and mm -hmm. bring that way of being to the workplace. Wow. Well, that sounds like a pretty wonderful state. I mean, how, how has your experience been so far? Have people been um, taking that journey with you? Yeah, it's been really good. And I should say that I am as much of a student right. and a instructor or teacher of the theory of enchantment. Okay. It's been really, really cool to see both from the pedagogical perspective and from the entrepreneurial perspective. Mm -hmm. from, the, from the perspective of pedagogy, there are three principles of the theory of enchantment. Teaches. Mm -hmm. The first principle is treat people like human beings, not mm -hmm. equal distraction. Okay. The second principle is criticize to uplift and empower, not mm -hmm. tear down or destroy. Mm -hmm. And then the third principle is try to root everything you do in love and compassion. Mm -hmm. So these are the three principles we bring to our partners. And then there are practices that go along with all of these principles, at least in our full course. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is, you know, like I said, I'm a student of it. I, um, someone who's also trying to learn how to love. 
So yeah. um, I practice the theory in as much as I teach it. Mm-hmm. The entrepreneurial side, which is super fascinating, which is, you know, trying to figure out a way to build systems that will easily uh, bring theory of enchantment into different ecosystems across different industries, uh, mm-hmm. given the diversity of really the infinite diversity of industries that exist in the world. Mm. And we create a product that can scale not only up, but across as many ecosystems mm-hmm. as possible. And that's been really fun to like figure out the puzzle of that. Mm. Well, if, if you crack that code, I would, I would love for you to share it because <laughs> I know in my, my own entrepreneurial journey, that's, that is, that is tricky, right? To kind of understand who your audience can be and then figure out how you can connect to that audience. And I think, um, that could be something we dive into a little, little more here. I think I'd love to start more on, on the pedagogy side, because I think, I think when people hear about what you do, you know, and, and you describe it as, I think on your site at times as a, as a an anti-racism practice, but then also at times as more of a diversity and inclusion practice. And I think all of those things obviously can link together. What, what is different about the approach that, that you're taking than what some people may have experienced? A lot of people have probably gone through programs at work or even outside of work. And, and, and how are, what are some of the distinctions that people might see with yours? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do market as, as an anti-racism uh, practice or diversity, equity, and inclusion practice. And mm-hmm. what distinguishes other practices that are out there, I would say are two things. But number one is that we perceive or view supremacy mm-hmm. as this the mystical thing that only a few people are capable of uh, imposing or acting out. Mm-hmm. We perceive supremacy as a coping mechanism that human beings in the, across the human species before mm-hmm. as a way to deal with pain. Mm. And that site actually comes from some of James Baldwin's observations mm-hmm. that people will cling to their bigotries because they low-key suspect that once bigotry is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Mm. And so I would say that as a species, and we that's another thing that distinguishes us, I think mm-hmm. if you have this perspective, ultimately that comes from looking at human beings as a species, right? Mm-hmm. As a species, we have coping mechanisms to deal with the chaos of the unknown. The chaos mm-hmm. is not having our needs. So, mm-hmm. for example, I don't have my needs matter. I don't have food, water, shelter, security. But mm-hmm. more, uh, uh, even more sort of uh, complex, I don't have access to a feeling of a love, love or feeling of belonging or feeling of um, friendship, feeling of self-esteem. Uh-huh. Have those uh, satisfied. I don't have the proper tools in my wheelhouse to deal with not having those needs met. Mm-hmm. Then we'll overcompensate, mm-hmm. adopting a very simplistic worldview. That's mm-hmm. something like all the people who look like me are good, and all the people who don't look like me mm-hmm. are good. Or, or mm-hmm. all the people who think like me are good, and all the people mm-hmm. who look like me are bad, right? You can drop yeah. any sort of sentence into it. You see, can see the pattern. But when I do yeah. that, ultimately... What I am trying to do is to cope with the pain of not having my needs met. Mm. So theory of enchantment 
goes in and says, well, let's go to the core of what's actually happening here. Mm-hmm. Unpack what it means to be a human being. Let's unpack all these needs that we have to have in order to thrive. Mm-hmm. Let's try to, because there are going to be times when I don't feel self-esteem, right? There are going to be times when I do feel insecure. This is mm-hmm. what it means to be human. Yep. It, what are the strategies I can reach for in order to deal with that? What are the more healthy, holistic strategies I can reach for in order to deal with that? And Damn. projecting insecurities onto others in mm-hmm. order to feel of, or in order to feel superior. And there are a whole strategies, let's say, some traditions, actually, that come mm-hmm. from the collective consciousness of the human. Mm-hmm. Away from wisdom tradition, stoicism, which is mm-hmm. to deal with uh, the feelings of consciousness. Stoicism actually came out of a time in ancient Greece where people were experiencing profound, the profound feeling of the loss of home and had to mm. process that. And, and, and stoicism was like, like a technology that developed out of that. Oh, wow. All the way to, you know, how do I, how do I handle parental baggage, right? Mm-hmm. How do I aware that a lot of the thought processes or the paradigm that I bring with me into the world have been mm-hmm. passed down unconsciously from my caretakers, from my parents. Awareness to that. So that if I find myself in conflict with someone, and for mm-hmm. some reason, I'm actually brought back psychologically to a time where I was with my parents mm-hmm. and in the present moment, mm-hmm. talking to the person or right. perceiving that person with my parents, how to mm-hmm. bring that conscious awareness so that I don't respond in an adversarial, distrusting, untrusting manner. So like mm-hmm. I said, there's like, there's like hundreds, really dozens to hundreds of actually different uh, mm-hmm. practices that we can to deal with these insecurities. And the mm-hmm. enchantment offered ecology of those practices to folks in the workplace to help them become more compassionate and open-minded and trusting, fundamentally mm-hmm. trusting themselves and Wow. I mean, <clears throat> my, my first instinct is, is it, sound, it sounds amazing. And what, what I wonder is if you step, you know, you walk into to somebody's workplace and, and you bring this up, but at the same time, there is already some conflict within this organization. And there might be some, some people who are feeling uh, slighted by the organization in some way. You talked about, about the idea of supremacy and some people might feel that that's present in their workspace sure. and and you're bringing this very compassionate look at like that person who's acting that way or this system that's acting that way is based in something much much more rooted in their own personal pain and their own lack of feelings of love um how do you crack open the door just enough to get the people at least open to hearing that message when when on the surface is frustration or anger or disappointment and those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. I would say that the way that the systems work in terms of bringing theory of enchantment into different workplaces is that Mm -hmm. usually an executive team or a team that has some sort of buying power will make the decision to like host a workshop or host Mm -hmm. an event um, either only with the C-suite level management team or mm-hmm. more diverse team of, you know, C-suite folks and non-C-suite folks. It really depends upon um, uh, the, the context of whatever given organization we're working with. Mm-hmm. But I would say that in a situation where there's already conflict, 
oftentimes the reason why we're being brought in in the first place is because of that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's best to just work with a small contingent of mm-hmm. initially. Okay. So we can help um, acclimate themselves to be able to realize all these things that I that I just said. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say it's an scene. So that when they go to their, let's say, team of managers, where let's say the managers do perceive that executive team as, um, uh, I, I don't know, exploitative or just not mm-hmm. managing well. Yep. The C-suite team is then able to actually hear the people who are mm-hmm. in that team. Mm-hmm. Them yeah. Without, you know, take personal offense mm-hmm. without feeling like they need to shut down and get defensive. Exactly. Step by step acclimating different teams to this new way of being. Exactly. They can go into the conflict in their own ecosystem and handle this appropriately. Handling it appropriately means learning things like nonviolent communication. Right. Um, one of my favorite things to teach is there's a beautiful point that Brene Brown makes in her TED talk, Power Vulnerability, where she says that the way that blame is described uh, in, a re- in the research that she did is a way to discharge pain. Mm. And I think that's really, really profound. Mm-hmm. We can tune our ear, both professionally and interpersonally, right? Mm-hmm. If we can tune our ears to hear blame, not personally, mm-hmm. as a way to discharge pain. The person is blaming us or blaming someone else or whatever. Mm. It's, it's just them discharging pain. And actually, as mm. human beings, we need safe spaces to discharge pain. Oh, absolutely. We can hear that. We can hear that. Let's say I'm on the receiving end of blame. If I can hear that, this is very hard, by the way. I, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to you know, uh, bypass that point, but yeah. I train my, myself to really hear someone blaming me as a way to discharge their pain and respond to the pain point instead of getting distracted by the blame. Mm. I can actually create a space of not only dialogue, but the ability to have that other person feel seen and feel heard mm-hmm. and then move forward and find a solution to whatever conflict. Mm. This takes so much practice. Mm-hmm. Our limbic system on an evolutionary practice, right? Mm-hmm. Our limbic system, that fight or flight ode in the back of our brains, mm-hmm. millions of years old. Yes. <laughs> the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. One of our brains is only a couple thousand years old, hundred thousand years old, something like that. Mm-hmm. So we have to really practice. It's like doing a rep. It's like exercising. There's no substitute for exercising when it comes yes. to this sort of stuff. But that's like the more long-winded response to your question. No, I, I love I love that though because I think first off I love the the notion of of starting small in an organization. I think that's really smart. Like um, getting buy-in and then getting people to understand enough of the practice that they can then uh, share it and be, be open to the questions and, and the potential, even if conflict comes up, like that's great. But the, the deeper notion of, of this, this idea that we're discharging pain, that thing from Brene Brown, uh, I, I've, I've heard similar in some things that I've explored. I, I follow this practice called uh, positive intelligence. Um, and it's, it's, it has a similar insight. But what I find is, is that limbic brain is so powerful that even if I intellectually can grasp that concept outside of the context of a conversation, when the conversation comes, 
it's so yeah. activated, right? Yeah. Um, right? So, so what what do you recommend for people as part of that practice to to get the the more compassionate part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, to start to to be at least at the same level of timing, so that it can sort of intercept the that that immediate reaction. Because I, I think of this even, like you said, interpersonally. Yeah. It's like somebody blames you for something, and you're in, you're you you just go into defensive mode, right? And then afterwards, I'll be like, "Oh, well, that person was hurt," <laughs> but that's not doing me any good. How does that happen simultaneously? Well, I will just I will just say that it, it's it's okay that it happened, you know, even a split second after or five minutes mm-hmm. after. Like, yeah, not I would not I would not encourage you to blame yourself for mm-hmm. you know not have happen simultaneously. One of the things my therapist has told me is like when I'm when I'm being annoyed and frustrated with my own sort of like lack of simultaneity, mm-hmm. I mean that the limits is in is millions of years old. Yes. The idea that I'm going to like successfully mm-hmm. override my own limbic system. I mean, I think this is a, a call to humility on, on some level. But mm-hmm. to your question, I, I will break down uh, a fun aspect of the word enchantment for a second. Mm-hmm. So, the theory of enchantment. Enchantment. When I think of the word enchantment, I think of this idea of being delighted. I think that mm-hmm. this idea of opening up to the, the infinite complexity of the world, of myself, mm-hmm. and of others. Uh, when I think of enchantment, you know, I think of sort of like not enlightenment, which is blinding light, mm-hmm. but I think of this this sort of sparkle, this sense of sparkle um, okay. that I experience when I encounter myself and the world. Another interesting tidbit about enchantment is its relationship to music. So, right. Um, I see you wearing a banjo shirt. Yes. The zipper in the back hand there. Um, <laughs> I have the as well. I see. Yeah. Our love singing, love, love producing. Nice. And so, you know, in Spanish, encantar means to sing. Right? Mm-hmm. Encanto, a uh, beautiful uh, word, also Disney movie, uh, mm-hmm. song, right? Enchant uh, also means to sing something into being or to yes. sing something into existence. And there is a, a a tuning here in the in the in the word itself. There's a sort of like an invitation mm-hmm. to tune in the listening word to what's actually mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. in journal. And so I would say the, the direct answer to your question is we want to actually be able to train our ear to tune in to what's happening to us mm-hmm. thematically in that moment. So in the mm-hmm. moment when I'm being blamed, I feel a rush of hot energy mm-hmm. up. Yeah. I feel heated. That's why we say I feel heated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a conceptual, it's not conceptual language, right? It's not mm-hmm. conceptual language. It's actually the somatic, mm-hmm. right? And so I think part of the practice is actually practicing tuning into what's happening in the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And number two, and this is where there's vulnerability, is actually stating what's happening. And that's where nonviolent communication is. Okay. Mm. Right. And so I can tune myself into noticing what's happening in that moment and mm-hmm. so articulating what's happening in that moment. 
Mm. It'll be intercepting it. <laughs> mm. Because I simply be present with what is. Mm-hmm. I am like a jam session, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from New Orleans, the birthplace of jazz. Oh, so nice. much, I'm very much tuned into that sort of language. Yeah. Like tap enter into relationship with myself and with the world mm. in such a way that I am jamming at all. Mm. I am, I am alive and present with what is mm-hmm. it's just sort of like a free flow interaction. Mm. Um, so there's, you know, somatic practice, like deep breath work that goes with that mm-hmm. uh, ability to tune into what's happening. But that is, um, I think very fundamental actually to, to the question that you're that you're asking and to the to the puzzle that we're essentially trying to solve for. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things jumped out at me there. You talked about when you feel that heat articulating that. So what does that look like? Are you literally saying like I'm feeling heated right now? I'm feeling activated or something by this conversation? Or how do you how do you do that in a way that is, you know, not gonna activate something else from somebody else, you know? Well, so, so I would say, firstly, understand that you cannot control everything and you're not mm-hmm. in control of everything. And that's a good point. Yeah, there's no guarantee that as mm-hmm. you articulate what's happening for you that you're not going to activate, right? Yeah, fair. Remember that as human beings, we, we carry sort of like the unfolding of processes that have come before. So if I'm talking to you and for whatever reason, when you're talking to me, you're experiencing some event that happened with your mother five years ago, I'm mm-hmm. not going to be able to, you know, control for that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So that's, that's really important to keep in mind. But I mm-hmm. think like to, to the your question, it's like nonviolent communication helps us with this because nonviolent communication trains us to essentially express what is happening in a way where we can take ownership of our feelings. So I might say something like, let's say if I'm feeling heated, I might say something like, I'm feeling heated, I'm feeling mm-hmm. defensive. Mm-hmm. So for naming all of those things, again, it's very vulnerable practice, right? Mm-hmm. I'm feeling uh, defensive, I'm feeling like I want to shut down and mm-hmm. don't want to have this conversation at all. Mm-hmm. And then, and this is sort of where more pointed NBC comes in, it's like, let's say that you, let's say the source of the conflict, I'm just making this up, is that you haven't been consistent in your communication, mm-hmm. right? And so I will say something to you like, when you don't communicate with me consistently, I feel small. Mm. And the reason why I feel small is because as a human being, I need to feel connected, right? Mm-hmm. I need to feel connection Mm-hmm. people in my life that I care about. And yeah. when I don't feel that connection, I feel small. Then, yeah. Notice, I'm not blaming you. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm telling you what is present for me. Yeah. Right? I'm, tr- I'm just being honest with what, what is present for me. And I'm mm-hmm. not, and I'm not, I'm not blaming you. And so mm-hmm. it's that subtlety, right? The same subtlety that goes into playing pentatonic scale. Uh, mm-hmm. is <laughs> like the subtlety that, mm-hmm. that I am and, and that theory of enchantment is like calling us to or summoning us mm. to in that. Mm. Well, I, yeah, I can even. After, after. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just. I, after I, 
essential. <laughs> I might ask something of you, right? I might mm. ask, like, I might ask you how to feel to hear that. Right? Mm. Chris, what's going, what's present for you? Yeah. What's, what's alive for you right now? And then we're jamming. Yeah. Then we're in a jam session. And it, yeah. then we're in that singing, like, or song-like quality of enchantment. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is particularly intriguing to me for a couple of reasons. One, as a musician, it just connects to me. But I think as you demonstrated a little bit of that nonviolent communication, it's like you're not, you know, I think what some people might think when they hear that is, oh, I'm just going to be quote unquote nice. And it's, it, and that sometimes means avoidance, right? right? You're being very direct. When you say this thing, I feel this thing. Right. And that, that makes me feel like, you know, this way because of this need that's not being, you know, met for me. And then you can then bring it back to the other person and go, well, you know, how does that make you feel? Um, yeah. So you're being very honest and direct, but you're not, you're not, you're also not. And I, I would imagine this might be more violent communication where it would just be like, push it right back at the person and go, you're, you're, you're an expletive. And why are you being so, so nasty right now? Right. Um, so I, I think there's something really interesting there. And I think just the notion, the framing of life or conversations in this idea of a jam session is just, it, it allows it to, to not feel sort of loaded to me. Um, it allows it to feel like a process of, of co-creation, which is really nice. Um, yeah. No, it, it, am I getting that right? <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. I, and I emphasize, I want to emphasize that point because all great products and a business X mm-hmm. from co-creation. Uh-huh. Right. So you can see how this might scaffold onto how, the question of how do we build a great product? customers yeah serve their need much one-to-one needed to that question Mm. you know what's what's interesting there too is i think when some people have experienced any kind of you know dei training or similar it can feel very much like it's bolted on to everything else it's not integrated into the work you do and what you just described is something really interesting which is we're not simply giving you a thing to either check a box and or to, to focus to this thing that lies out here. It's like, if you can learn to be together in this way, in this jam session kind of mindset, it allows you to, to create more things, to, to work better together, to, to, it will, it will enhance your business in whatever way that, that shows up. That, that feels really interesting. Um, do people resonate with that? thought when you when you bring this into them oh for sure we've had folks who have taken our online course mm-hmm. who have said that oh when i interacted with this customer who told me who, who came in yelling that they needed you know something mm-hmm. i immediately went okay i mean what do you need and how can i do it? like the yeah there was no, like you know there there was no or there was lots of a defensive, an automatic defensive posture. Mm-hmm. Person has needs. Let me see how I might service to those needs. Mm. Folks have told told us that they are able to manage conversations between, you know, top level directors and managers more mm-hmm. easily or give feedback in a more constructive way mm-hmm. because of they're going through 
Mm. But we've had we've seen direct impact from folks doing these practices in the workplace. Mm. I can I can imagine, and and I think when you when you layer in the notion of of human difference, right, and the ways we define that, right, because I think we define that in sometimes what what I would say are simplistic but still relevant ways, whether whether that's race or ethnicity or culture uh, or gender. These are things that are alive in our, our world. So I understand why we do it. But does that process of, of, of getting people into this state of, of more of a flowing kind of uh, jam-like state, can it break down some of those, those challenges? If, 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 if somebody's coming in with a perspective of, I don't know how to connect with somebody who's different from me, or I, ha- I have some sense of uh, difference that, that blocks me there does does this sure. break through that your question one of the we call the missions in the theory of enchantment online course which is mm-hmm. basically about noticing how we project and assume roles onto other people and on mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fact that we assign roles onto other people and onto ourselves mm-hmm, yeah. so a very easy example is the other day I was on the plane and there was someone next to me who I perceived as a member of Gen Z. Mm. And I'm a millennial. Uh-huh. My sisters are my little sister are Gen Z. So I have yeah. to correct. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> my, my, my brain all, all of a sudden started like assuming things uh-huh. about the person sitting next to me because I assumed they were Gen Z. And then uh-huh. I went into the theory of enchantment practice I like sort of like zoomed out and saw that I was assigning this role to this person uh-huh. and therefore assigning a role to myself. And uh-huh. there's nothing wrong with this. As long as we are conscious that this is what we're doing, right? Uh-huh. All the practice is bringing conscious awareness and attention to the fact that this is what we're doing. Uh-huh. Once I became conscious of it, it's, it's not as if I completely dispense with the role that I was assigning to the person or assigning to myself, mm-hmm. but rather that the role more loosely held. Mm. So I didn't, I didn't find myself over identifying with this role that I had projected onto her or onto her. Mm. And so mm. I think that's really the direction that theory of enchantment points people towards is to be able to see really the power of creation that we have as human beings mm-hmm. and how we can hinder ourselves when we when we so rigidly hold certain identities uh, also just to be able to, to see like we create these identities and there's nothing wrong again with creating mm-hmm. identities right conscious of the fact that that's what we're um and so that's a bit conceptual but i have to say for for myself personally i feel a somatic difference when i mm-hmm. shift between those two modes, when I step from like unconscious projection uh-huh. to conscious projection, and therefore I'm able to see like the unfolding complexity of the person in front of my eyes. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that that sort of to the present moment. And so I don't have to like feel so, um, I don't know, feel so inclined to over identify how uh-huh. I'm identifying in that moment. Yeah, I think that that term um, loosely held is is really interesting, right? Because I think some people might hear when when you bring up the idea of the the stories we have around whatever identities we're we're 
creating and living in. Um, there, there is some instinct for some, and some people may even say this, like, just ditch it, you know, like get rid of it. And just like, you know, in, the, in its simplest form, like it's like, we're all, we're all just people and, and blah, blah, blah. And I think there's, there's some merit to that thought, but I also think identity is real. Um, yeah. And we need to create identities to move through the world. And, but if they can be slightly more loosely held, like you said, and be conscious about that, then you, you not only step out of your own story a little bit, but you then start to see somebody beyond the story that you've created for them. And that's when you have a chance of starting to, to have that little jam session happening versus being these kind of avatars for whatever you want it to be just clashing. Right. And you can see that you can choose to change the story, which mm -hmm. is very powerful, right? There's a lot of mm -hmm. power in that. Um, yeah. A lot of agency in that. There's a great deal of autonomy in that. And I do love mm -hmm. that. I think that the term autonomy is actually related to the autonomic nervous system. So it's, a, mm -hmm. it's an embodied word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I will say that there is, th this is a challenge because I know that I I know how I get stuck in my own stories, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are certain stories that I and that I have had in my in the past where it felt like, you know, it felt it would feel devastating to get rid of those stories. Mm -hmm. it would feel devastating. Absolutely. Hold hold those stories loosely. Well, if I if I let go of some of those stories or if I loosely hold them, then who am I? Mm -hmm. How can I know who I am? And if I if I don't know who I am, then then the chaos of the unknown is now flooding into my world and how do I deal with that? Oh, uh, maybe I'll reach for that easy heuristic that tells me that all the people who think like me are good and all the people who don't think like me are bad. So we're, we're yes. back to the supremacist right mm -hmm. set. So I, I don't want to play how difficult it is actually to get to this state and to, and to constantly return to the state where you're mm -hmm. how everything is constantly coming into being and constantly going out of being in a sort of like metaphysical way. Mm -hmm. I find it far more satisfying to be able to come into that. That's it. And and there is, there is, I should say, discomfort. Like people you will encounter discomfort mm -hmm. because we, you know, we are not used to having our assumptions challenged in this way. We're not mm -hmm. used to, I certainly wasn't it before I created the different challenge. Yeah. And we're not used to, you know, having, we're not used to being confronted with this question, who are you? Mm -hmm. It's an actual um, question. And so many uh, Disney movies, which we reference a lot if they're even channeling, so many Disney mm -hmm. movies, the main character experiences like a, um, like a turn of events, if you will, when mm -hmm. you ask by another character, who are you? Right. Mm -hmm. you are. Mm -hmm. Right. Think of Simba and the Lion King, where mm -hmm. he asks him, "Are you?" Right. It's such yeah. a profound question. And in a way, we're trying to surface that question, hold that question up um, as the as the base point around which we can all actually meet. Because mm -hmm. going back to your, going back to your earlier question about like what distinguishes us from other, you know, DEI programs. Mm -hmm. fact that many DEI programs start with certain assumptions about 
you know, what it means to be black, what it means to be white, what it means mm-hmm. to be uh, male, what it means to be female, what it means to be straight, what it means to be, you know, uh-huh. so forth. And we start from the question, what does it mean to be a human? Regarding yeah. of your background, socioeconomic status, gender, whatever, mm-hmm. to be human. Let's, let's go to that fundamental base point and then we can actually move. And yeah. I perceive it essentially the same way that I perceive when I'm watching a show like Planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm falling in love with nature and I'm seeing all the things, the trees, the birds, the bats, the, <laughs> the whales. I, and I am mesmerized and I'm trying to get people to realize that like that's us as well you know, mm-hmm. we, should, we should be mesmerized by the human mm-hmm. experience of what it means to be human being mm. yeah I, I love that perspective I mean I think I think we forget sometimes just how special it is to to be yeah. human right and and, and how yeah. how much we share that there's something very universal about that experience and there's something uh, you know it is uh magical is a word i would use right it's like we get to 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 live and be and experience all of the beauty in the world and yeah and all the pain and all that stuff but um so i love that you start there and then you can kind of so there's there's some point of connection for people and then it's like okay if there are, if there are differences through, through, through however those show up, at least we, we recognize the value and the specialness of the human experience that we're living in, um, together. And that, that feels like a, at least it has the potential to, to create some unity that you can work with when there might be potential divisions among people. So have have people connected with that idea when you bring that up? Yeah, I I would say so. I mean, really we we begin our workshops with this fundamental question we have people engage in a practice that we call the who am i practice and we tell people Mm. to put a number on and for every answer that comes to them uh say thank you like express gratitude Mm. and it's and also remember express gratitude for the qualities of yourself that you don't like um that part Mm. is really really essential um and that Mm -hmm. really it's funny so strange to do that right it's so we mm-hmm. do that because we have been conditioned mm-hmm. not to be grateful for those aspects of yeah. that we dislike there's sort of a paradox mm-hmm. right but it's like if you can be grateful for the whole of the human experience right? mm-hmm. gratitude you can come to a place where you're able to express gratitude for yes the experience of joy that you had when you, you know, w- walked outside and saw autumn, but mm-hmm. also the experience of loneliness that you mm-hmm. had and that you found out that, you know, your friends were all out of town and you, mm-hmm. um, or, like if you can actually get present enough, and we're really talking about cultivating the capacity for profound presence, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, increasingly scarce in our. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get present enough and almost quiet enough, right, mm-hmm. to the beauty of it all, 
including the beauty, yes, of joy, but also the beauty of sorrow and yes, the beauty of pain mm-hmm. uh, the, that underpins all of it, mm-hmm. you will actually be able to see the illusory nature with which you have projected certain things. Mm-hmm. Both yourself and others, mm-hmm. you will be able to see that you can choose a different story, right? You can choose mm-hmm. different projections. You can mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. is part of unique, I would say, specialness of what it means to be human. Yeah, we can actually choose. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it can be really easy to feel like you have no choice. Um, and I, and I think in some ways, yeah. modern life uh, makes it even harder because we are, we have so few moments where we can actually feel present because things are just zipping by us, and we're we're just trying to like sort of survive in a sense yeah. uh, mentally. Um, that I think we don't always have just the brief moments of actually feeling present enough to recognize that the next moment is a choice. We're just feeling a little bit swept up in all of it. Um, And so I think a practice that can help you just step back for a second and realize that that next step forward is in fact a choice is huge. And I can see in the workplace, it's the same thing. I mean, we just get caught up in, we go from meeting to meeting to meeting. We go from conversation to conversation. We go from request to request, deadline to deadline. Um, and it's six months later and you just go, what the hell did we all just do? So if you can incorporate that practice in the workplace, I can see the profound impact it could have, especially if everybody is, is in it with you. And everybody's yeah. doing it in their own way and trying to find those moments so that you have the opportunity to get into more of that, that jam session mode, as opposed to this just kind of tsunami of, of life, just picking you up and taking you and throwing you and depositing you wherever it does, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's interesting. One of the words that, that you bring up very early on in your site and even today is this word love. And I think, of how, you know, people may struggle when they hear that word, right? Especially in a work setting. It's like, how can I bring love to work? How do you, how do you get people to see that word differently so that they can embrace that idea? You know, I, 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 that's a good question. I really don't try to convince people. Yeah. You know, like everything I'm saying to to you with what I, essentially say to them and mm-hmm. I think the impression that they get is that oh this is love mm. want to be a part of that and, mm. that and they know that they need that mm-hmm. yes they understand that. Mm-hmm. they are in touch with themselves and understand that mm-hmm. it's so I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but I think that in many facets of our lives, it's so lacking. Um, mm-hmm. We just launched a, like an end of year holiday sale for our online course. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we spoke about in the copy was, one of the things I spoke about in the copy was like how difficult it is to go home to your family. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a family that where you don't die on everything, 
and you're like, you know, dreading the fact that you're going to go home and you know that the conversations or topics are going to come up where you're mm-hmm. going to feel heated. Yeah. You're mm-hmm. going to feel anxious. You're not yeah. going to know how to. It's like that is the that is the the residue that we're, of course, bringing into mm-hmm. everywhere, whether it's the workplace, whether it's the personal space. Mm-hmm. None of these things are compartments. Yeah. Try to delude ourselves in senior compartments. Mm-hmm. They're all impacting and impacted by each other. Mm-hmm. So how do you bring this practice, yes, of love, mm-hmm. everything you you don't love what you're building at work? Mm-hmm. If you don't love what you're, you know, the services that you're putting together, the goal of the company that you're all a part of, you don't mm-hmm. love it. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it's true. And I think, I think, um, I think we, like you said, we sort of delude ourselves into thinking that we don't need that in the workspace, um, that we can, we can get by with, with just kind of being okay in the workspace. And I think yeah. uh, my, my belief and part of why I probably started this podcast is I believe it can be so much more, but I do think it takes that. I think you need to feel that sense of love and that sense of, of inspiration and that sense of passion. And then hopefully that creates this sense within whoever you're working with of, uh, of shared, you know, commitment and shared love towards whatever you're trying to build. Cause that's when suddenly that magical stuff starts to happen. I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you enter into flow state, right? Work. Mm-hmm. And, yes. And then it's not, and then it's not interpreted as going from meaning to meaning. You are, Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's grinding, but there's a there's a thrill to it. Yeah, because you love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such a different feeling um, when you are in that flow state, and it is, you know, it, it reminds me of something you, you know you describe. I think at some point yourself as an artist, um, and it yeah. it and. I, I love that notion. And, and what it makes me think is, as we're talking through all of this, it's like to not just survive, but thrive in, in sort of a modern world and in a modern workplace. Do we all need to be artists? Do we all need to see ourselves that way so that we can kind of enter more of these flow states, have more of this jam with the people we're working with? Do you think that that's true? I think that's a great question. And I do think that that's true. I mean, when I think of the term artist, because I'm associating it with artisan and mm-hmm. and what it means to be a, a, an artisan or craftsman, mm-hmm. there's a relationship between what you are creating and you. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it's not this sort of like, you're not divorced from it. Uh-huh. Yes. You because it is your creation. Mm-hmm. I think that's enough. when people feel like they don't have a choice, they just mm-hmm. understand the profound impact that they have on the world. They can't see, mm-hmm. they can't feel it, mm-hmm. and they can't—they can't see that every every day, every hour, they are creating. They're in the process of creation. Mm-hmm. They are being, and they are creating simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and the, if we can't wake up to that fact we can't uh if we can't see that fact mm-hmm. we're cooked. 
mm-hmm. of what it means to be human, which goes back to that first principle. Treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, almost devotional relationship that one can have with their mm-hmm. earth. And I think that is what art has, that's what craftsmen have. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the we bring about that orientation into the workplace more explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it, I, I can imagine it would be a, a very profound change if people were able to adopt that story for themselves, loosely yeah. held, but there, you know, I think it would be, it would be really interesting. And it, it brings me to a, cu- a couple of the questions I like to ask to kind of wrap up. I feel like you're starting to describe some of this stuff, but I always ask, like, if you could just wave a magic wand and kind of make work not suck, like for people, what, what would that be? Right? Like, what does that world look like if, if it's, if it's a, a less suckified world? Yeah, I think it is sort of uh, imbuing into people or more. I don't want to describe a top-down approach. I think mm-hmm. it's emergent, mm-hmm. but more emergent development within human being, awakening to this sensibility, to this sensitivity, which is an artist-like sensitivity mm-hmm. or relationship with the work that they are doing, with the prop mm-hmm. they are producing, right? With the thing that they are creating if you mm. can have a more uh artistic relationship with what they are creating and or who they are servicing mm-hmm. and if they could actually hold their own complexity and see their own complexity with a sense of awe mm. see their own beauty mm-hmm. uh they will be able to see beauty in others and to be mm. beauty in others and bring that sensibility and sensitivity to the workplace. In the workplace, I mean, there's no telling what would happen in the workplace in terms of the profound sense of meaning that people uh-huh. encounter. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. a lot of spend the majority of their life in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> no space for love in the work. You better hope that you love what you do. Yeah. the majority of your life. I, I fully agree with that. I love that word awe, like seeing the awe in what you bring. I think that like being in awe of who you are and what you bring is, is a, is a wonderful shift. Um, I know we got to, we got to wrap things up here. One thing I ask of people and you don't need to do this, but I throw it out there. I do a lot of sound effects on my, my, uh, show. I do a lot of cat sounds. Um, are you game for, donating a sound effect that you're able to make. You do have any, like, it could be music, it could be anything. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, again, it's usually goofy sounds, but it could be anything. If you're game, great. If not, no worries. Uh, like there's no rules for the sound. I can no that. rules. That it can be, be, it could be anything. Yeah. I'll just use my voice. Okay. Okay. I'll just use my voice. <laughs> I like that. It it feels like uh, it has an interesting mix of like almost a little bit of jazz sound, but almost a little bit of a cartoon like music when somebody's kind of meandering through, like tiptoeing through. I don't know if it what it, what that is specifically. Was that a specific tune? 
No, I just pulled that out. You just pulled that out? I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Well, it will probably show up somewhere in our in the intro to our episode, just so you know. Uh, so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try to find the right spot for it. Uh, lastly, before we go, I just want to give people a chance to know how can they uh, how can they find you and, and learn more about the work you're doing? Yeah. So people can go to theoryofenchantment.com to find out mm-hmm. more about uh, the company. They can follow us at Enchant Theory on Twitter or Theory mm-hmm. Enchantment on Instagram. Or follow my Instagram at Valdery. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'll put all of that in the show notes as well. And, and maybe if, there, if there's anything else I can have there that's helpful, I will. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Chloe, for coming on. I felt like uh, we want a, a fun journey and, and, and I feel more optimistic about how we can help people create more of a, of a jazz-like environment in the workplace where we're all jamming together and, and, and creating stuff that we truly love. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chloe. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Desuckify Work Podcast. And thanks to Chloe for being an enlightening and engaging guest. You can follow Chloe and Theory of Enchantment on LinkedIn, on X, and at theoryofenchantment.com. You should also check out her podcast, The Heart Speaks, where she talks with philosophers, artists, writers, and academics about the big issues impacting our culture. And if you'd like to know more about the impact my work can have for you or your business, check out thepuddingfactory.net, follow the podcast on Substack and YouTube, and subscribe to the Desuckify Work newsletter at tjbennett.substack.com. Have a wonderful holiday season, everyone. Bye.